I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to my Easter sermon, The Reality of the Resurrection, in which my point is that every man has free will, and you can't convince a man past his own mind. Once a man has the facts about the resurrection, being saved is just a matter of will on the man's part. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Happy Easter to us on the 12th of April. And our lesson for this morning is the reality of the resurrection. And our text is Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, in which the Bible says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray, amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, one of the most disturbing trends in our society is the rise of revisionism. We have reached a point in our society in which any truth, historical or moral, can be changed in the minds of people by simply revising the explanation of events to fit a theoretical model of reality that, while plausible, appearing to make sense, is not accurate. We never demand to see the truth of the theoretical model of this reality, but it becomes our perception of reality, as the statement of the model is repeated by those which, whom we esteem and become statements of authority in our mind. Take abortion, for instance. The revised theory of reality is the widely held but inaccurate assertion that a fetus is not a human being until it is born. Now, while this theory may seem plausible to the ignorant or to people that want to abort a child, the knowledgeable know that it is patently not true. However, it leads to the argument that a woman should be able to kill a fetus 
although she cannot kill a child. We justify abortion in our minds and consider abortion as a mother's right by changing the definition of the word fetus from unborn child to mass of cells, creating the plausible but inaccurate assertion that an unborn child is not a human being until it is born. We simply revise reality in our minds. Take the argument for homosexual marriage. The argument is that homosexuals are just normal people that love each other and that homosexual relationships are just as legitimate and loving as our heterosexual relationships. The revision of reality comes in the widely held but inaccurate assertion that homosexuality is not really a perversion, but an innate God-given characteristic over which a homosexual has no control. And while this may seem plausible, it is patently not true. Homosexuality is a sin and like any other sin, is an act that people desire to do, but decide to either do or not do by an act of the will. But we call this sin a God-given characteristic, simply revising reality in our minds. Now, Christianity is not and has never been immune to the activity of the revisionist thinker. Second Peter chapter two, verses one through three tell us, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15 tells us about these false teachers. It says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, there are many, especially in academia, but some even in the church, who fit the description given in the aforementioned passages of Scripture. Many of the colleges and theological seminaries in our nation, which were founded for the purpose of equipping men to spread the gospel, have been seduced by Satan and now equip men to cast doubt on the truth of the gospel by a simple revision of history. Academic leaders have endeavored to revive history by simply making the plausible but inaccurate assertion that it is scientifically impossible for Jesus Christ to have risen from the dead. And why would they do this? To allow the following argument. Since the Bible reports that the resurrection is historically accurate, we can then deduce that the Bible uh, is historically inaccurate. We can then deduce that the Bible is also morally inaccurate. And since our moral norms are based upon the authority of the morally inaccurate Bible, it is logical that we revise the norms of morality. 
and the revision of moral norms is the ultimate agenda of the abortionist, homosexuals, and others who wish to revise biblical morality. Now, the apostle Paul foresaw this situation. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19 gives us his account of the argument. The Bible says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Now, the argument for the resurrection is found in the testimony of the witnesses, the people that saw Jesus Christ alive after his resurrection. There are those, however, who would dispute the facts of history on a scientific basis. Their idea is that the resurrection is scientifically impossible Thus, the Bible is a collection of myths. And although that is plausible, it is patently not true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical event, not a scientific one. Scientific proof requires repeated human observation of recurring physical activity in our environment. The assumption of science is that our environment is a self-regulating set of physical processes and scientific proof is a compilation of the observation of these processes. I can prove to you scientifically that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. All we have to do is observe the sun's rise and sunset on a series of days. And if the sun rises in the east and sets in the west every day, we say that we have scientific proof that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west because we have observed the same condition repeatedly. The reason that scientists do double-blind studies on drugs is to objectively observe the effects of the drug on a group of people from which they can make a projection how the, as to how the drug will affect the majority of people. And the observation of the effects of the drug is the, and the study is called scientific proof but historical events are not like scientific events. Since historical events do not occur naturally, historical events can be unique, meaning that they do not have to occur over and over again to be studied by science. The signing of the Declaration of Independence was an historical event that happened because of the deliberate action of a group of men in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1776. Since it only happened once, we cannot scientifically prove that it happened. To prove the signing of the Declaration of Independence, we have to rely on documentary or historical proof. We have the document that was signed, and we have the testimony of those that were there to give us the proof of the historical fact that the Declaration of Independence was signed. So, 
Whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead is not a matter of scientific investigation. And the fact that we do not have the ability to duplicate Jesus's resurrection by scientific means is not a relevant fact in an investigation of whether or not the resurrection occurred. The testimony of history is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened and since executed dead men pronounced dead by executioners and buried in sealed tombs do not normally rise from the dead without human assistance after three days in the tomb, we must conclude that a force other than nature caused the resurrection. The historical record of the resurrection is first given by Peter in our text for today, Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, which says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves already know, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, Peter is the first of a multitude of historical authors that testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The testimony of history is that the power of God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the same power of which the Bible testifies in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, the creation of our existence is a unique historical event, as is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Human scientists take the position that our creation as deliberate as it appears to be, is a matter of chance. The Big Bang Theory does not invalidate the biblical record of creation. It simply postulates that creation was not an intentional work of God, but rather a random occurrence caused by chance. And the precise layout of our environment that allows us to survive and thrive on the earth is a matter of fortunate coincidence rather than deliberate planning. A roughly analogous situation would be to go into a junkyard with a crane, pick up automobile parts at random, throw them into the air, and when they descend, they come down in the form of a 2009 Buick Park Avenue Ultra, Ultra running with the key in the ignition. Now, I submit to you that a scientific evaluation of historical events is not necessarily objective. The reason that science exists is that men want to be able to predict and control nature. And when events outside of the natural occur, 
scientists have no science with which to explain those events. So they develop theories that may have no scientific basis but fit their belief structure, which may be prejudiced against the existence of God. And since Jesus' resurrection was outside of the natural norm, it was historical rather than scientific, and we need to go to the testimony of history rather than to the prejudices of scientists to decide whether or not the resurrection actually happened. So the historical question rather than the scientific one is, is there any reliable testimony that the resurrection actually happened? And I can say without fear of successful contradiction that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single event in the history of antiquity for which there is the most evidence. We have eyewitness testimony that is without equal and documentary evidence that is without peer. The resurrection changed the course of Jewish and Roman history and redefined the most powerful nation in the history of the world at that time. Christianity and paganism went head to head in Rome starting in 33 AD with the resurrection. The pagans held sway from, for 280 years until in 310 AD when the Roman Emperor Constantine capitulated to Christianity and became a Christian. And understand that for much of the first 280 years of Christianity, to become a Christian was to put yourself at great personal risk. There were the great Roman circuses where Christians were thrown to the lions to be eaten and where beautiful young Christian maidens were tied to poles on the top of Colosseums, covered with pitch and lit as lanterns to provide illumination for the evening activities. For 280 years, people all over the Roman Empire made the ultimate sacrifice, that is, they gave their lives in order to spread Christianity, and eventually their sacrifices proved not to be in vain, as Christianity became the state religion of Rome. And the fact that the Christian church still exists nearly 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ is also an important piece of circumstantial evidence for the resurrection. Men have put their lives on the line throughout history for ideals in which they believe. But men would not go to prison and to death as did the Christians in the first three centuries of the Christian eras for something that they knew to be a lie. If there was not an actual person named Jesus Christ that lived the life that the Bible described, or if Jesus' body was never in the tomb, or if Jesus Christ's disciples stole the body, how do you explain the history of Rome from 33 AD on? Were all of the eyewitnesses deluded? And understand that these eyewitnesses did not testify in comfortable chairs in courtrooms with a jury deciding the case. These eyewitnesses testified while in death chambers facing execution and said Jesus is Lord while staring death in the face for doing so. The testimony of, these, of the blood of these individuals cannot be ignored. Of course, the Bible is our source of information for the events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a source of history, the Bible has excellent attestation. 
first of all, there has never been an archaeological find that ever contradicted a biblical reference. As a matter of fact, archaeologists are among the most conservative of biblical scholars because they can go to the places that the Bible tells them that artifacts exist and find them there. Secondly, the authors of the biblical accounts were eyewitnesses or the secretaries of eyewitnesses. And these men were serious witnesses because they all, except the apostle John, laid down their lives in defense of the testimony that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They were persecuted, tortured, and finally killed because they would not give up the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the testimony of the followers of Jesus Christ so affected history that here, from the perspective of 20 centuries, we are still reading their testimony, and the church that God founded through them still exists, and over 80% of the people in our highly scientific and enlightened country believe in Jesus Christ to some degree and have at least some affiliation with the church. The library is full of historical books testifying to the facts about the life of Jesus Christ and the historical fallout created by his death, burial, and resurrection. We have every historical and evidentiary reason to believe in the testimony of the scriptures and the accuracy of the Bible. However, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a, a unique historical event. Since it was a unique event rather than a recurring event, scientific observation has no jurisdiction over our thinking on the matter of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But then Paul puts the matter into factual perspective by saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And as I said before, we have every historical and evidentiary reason to believe in the testimony of the scriptures and the accuracy of the Bible. But the real problem that many have with the scripture is not with the history of the nation of Israel and the early Christian church, but with the moral doctrines given in the Bible by God to govern our behavior and our lives. The testimony of the scripture is that Jesus Christ died that sins might be forgiven. 
But in order to have your sins forgiven, you must first agree with Jesus Christ as to the definition of sin. People don't necessarily reject Jesus Christ because they disagree with his history. People generally reject Jesus Christ because they disagree with his teaching on how life should be lived. Now, I attended a school to learn how to evangelize, and in the school, the teacher told us of an encounter that he had. He boarded a plane in Chicago bound for Houston, Texas, when a fellow sat down next to him. Once the plane was airborne, the fellow, a friendly Texan, looked over at him and introduced himself. They struck up a conversation. Sir, the fellow said, what do you do for a living? The evangelist replied, I work for the kingdom of God. Quite a job you have there, said the Texan. I would certainly not want to get on the wrong side of the boss if I was working in your position. Speaking of that, said the evangelist, are you a church-going fellow? Not too much, said the Texan. You know, Easter at Mother's Day, that's about it. Now the evangelist, sensing the opening, began to work his way into a gospel presentation. He asked the Texan, what would you say if you died and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? Now the Texan had no real answer to the question, so the evangelist began giving the Texan, Texan his gospel presentation. He acquainted the Texan with the concept of sin and informed him about the universal nature of sin and that we have no natural way to escape the power and penalty of sin. He then went on to talk about the loving nature of God, but also the justice of God that could only be satisfied by an accounting for our sin. The evangelist continued talking about Jesus Christ, the God-man who came down from heaven to pay the penalty that we owe for our sins, to purchase us a place in heaven, which he offers us as a free gift. He talked about the passion and suffering of Jesus Christ as he hung, bled, and died on the old rugged cross to give us a right to everlasting life. As the evangelist described the torture that Jesus endured, the Texan began to be affected by the story. The Texan hung his head and tears began to form in his eyes. The Texan found himself reaching for his handkerchief as the evangelist went on with the story of the pain and agony that Jesus suffered and made it clear that Jesus died that his, the Texan's, sins might be forgiven. The evangelist went on to describe the various different types of faith to the Texan and made it plain that the only way that the Texans could successfully make it to heaven when he died was to trust in Jesus Christ alone for his salvation. And at the conclusion of his presentation, the evangelist said, now my friend, that was the greatest story ever told about the greatest man that ever lived and the greatest offer ever given. The Bible says that whenever two or three are gathered together, Jesus Christ is in the midst. So Jesus is with us here right now. And the question that he would have me ask you is, would you like to receive the free gift of eternal life? The Texan looked at the evangelist with tears in his eyes and softly said, no. No, questioned the evangelist. The Texan said, you know, you never asked me what I do for a living. And now that I've heard your story, I'm ashamed to tell you. What I do skirts the fringes of being illegal and is certainly immoral without a doubt. My problem is 
that I do not want to give up my business because it is making me rich and I enjoy the, uh, shall we say, associations that I get into. It may be wrong in the sight of God, but I just can't give it up right now. Maybe the day will come when I change my mind, but right now my life is tied up in my business. There was nothing that the evangelist could do because the man had the facts and made up his own mind to not act on them. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 23 tells us, Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And the man answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at the man, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. But the man was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now you may notice that Jesus let the young man go away sorrowfully, and it is clear that the Lord did not go after him. Of course, I understand the biblical stories of the lost coin and the lost sheep where the woman sweeps her house from top to bottom to find the coin and then rejoices because she has found her lost coin and where the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep. But here is Jesus' principle. Every man has free will and you can't convince a man past his own mind. Once a man has the facts of the case, It is just a matter of will on the man's part. Jesus knew that more arguments would not help the mind of the young man, but only a change of his will. Only the young man himself could make a a change of his will a reality. Revelations 3, 19 and 20 quotes Jesus as saying, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him to dine with him and he with me. Jesus is willing to come in, but you have to open the door. The episode with Jesus and the young man concluded thusly as recorded in Mark 10, 23 through 27. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his word. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? 
But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Science may tell us that the resurrection is impossible, but God tells us through his word that with him, through his power, all things are possible. God is able to change you once you surrender your will. He can fix your erroneous thoughts through the power of the Holy Spirit. He can help you to understand his word, which is the lamp for our feet and the light for our pathway. It is time that we decide by an act of our will to read and understand the word of God, to conform our life to the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, which is transmitted to us through the objective word of God. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Therefore, to be ignorant of God's word is to be as one lost on the sea, clinging only to a capsized boat, awaiting the inevitable death to come. To be without God's word is to be as one stranded in the desert, searching for an oasis, but finding none, becoming parched and dying. To be indifferent to God's word is to be as one begging along the roadside, asking for help, but receiving only the crumbs that vain philosophies can provide. To reject God's word is to be as one lost, always traveling toward disappointment and despair on dead-end roads. To deny God's word is to be as one who is stumbling in the dark with no light to guide him as he continues to fall into every dangerous crevice. To disbelieve God's word is to be as one who builds on a sand dune that shifts every time the wind blows. And to dispute God's word is to be for, as one who waits for the golden moment of opportunity that will never come. But you can believe in God's word and be saved by God's word and benefit from God's word by a simple decision of the will. Let us then turn away from the invalid theoretical models that incorrectly endeavor to redefine reality and turn once again to the authenticity of the accurate and unadulterated word of God, which tells us that the reality of the resurrection is that Jesus Christ rose physically from the dead on that first Easter Sunday morning to offer us the free gift of eternal life. Romans 6 and 23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for the lesson this morning, and we thank you for the resurrection. And we thank you that this thing was not done in a corner, but that copious proof exists, that there is more proof for the resurrection than there is for any other action in the world before the inventing of the printing press that you made it clear that you came down from heaven and died on the cross and rose from the grave physically, that we might trust in the fact that you came to save us from the power and the penalty of our sins and that your sacrifice was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. We rely upon your sacrifice this morning as we stand before your throne and we thank you for that which you have done for us because one day 
when I was lost, you died upon the cross, and I know that it was your blood that saved me. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today, and we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place, and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.